Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. We have a, a melange of different topics we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about vaccines. We're going to talk about uh, politics as performance art. We are going to talk about the uh, election that continues or the sort of the, what is it when you have a kind of little mini, you know, the epilogue election. <laughs> the Yeah. Yeah. Down in Georgia. Um, and maybe we can get into the fact that there's still, I don't know if it was last week or the week before last when I mentioned that there had been no polls of that, of that race, which is just, you know, kind of totally outside of, of, of anyone's experience. I think there's, there've been a few now, um, but still pretty few. And in some way, and no, bi- and no big kind of reputable national polling organizations, right? For the most part, well, I think what survey USA mm-hmm. had one and they're not, they don't have a, they don't have, they're, they're not as prominent as they were like a decade ago, but they're pretty, I think of them as pretty, you know, pretty solid, but you're right. It's not like, you know, ABC or Quinnipiac or one of these with a sort of a big national brand. Um, and I don't know, I guess there's been more than one cause I've seen a few, I, I think I saw Nate Silver, uh, referencing an average, but in some ways it's interesting that it's, uh, it's not that different in as much as there's only been a few and they're very, very close. They're certainly within the margin of error and they're certainly within what we might now call the margin of polling, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Which is just like, you know, unless you're 10 points up, I, who cares, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> Especially from, uh, from the perspective of a Democrat, you know, don't show me a poll where like the Democrat is two points up because we know that means nothing um, from, you know, from recent experience. And certainly it is uh, even if we uh, long before the 2016, 2020 era uh, runoffs are very hard to poll, you know, because you just don't, the, the, the turnout model is different. Uh, you just don't know. You, it is very difficult to come to any rigorous understanding of what the shape of the electorate is going to be like, especially this year when, you know, is 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 this whole kind of, uh, you know, uh, Q curious stop the steal movement. Is that going to torpedo the senators? Is that going to be their margin? Because Trump is now saying, like, vote for them as a way to express your <laughs> rage about me as a victim, right? Uh, or is it going to be that uh, Democrats want to, you know, want to finish the job, want to give Joe a shot, right? Want to give him the give him a tenuous but real control of the Senate? Um, you have and and. With all the different things kind of in the air, I don't know how exactly this plays in, but I would have to imagine that having uh, an African-American man uh, as a possible, you know, next senator from Georgia, I would think that's going to that's going to be a a jolt uh, for African-American turnout, which obviously in in a state like Georgia is not just the you know, a base of the GOP. It's, I'm sorry, with the Democratic Party. It's, it's, uh, it's a huge part of, of what the Democratic Party is. I don't know exactly the, um, the percentage of African American voters in the state at large, but, you know, it's a huge thing. So, uh, we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about something else that I don't even remember. 
because I've been I've been just I, I, I that sounds just, like it just about covers it. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's yeah. one other thing, but gotta I gotta stay know, tuned no to find out. That's a teaser trailer. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> gotta leave a little, a, just the, you know, just gonna give you guys the sizzle <laughs> and not the steak. All right, before we do that. Uh, let me remind you uh, that uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Legally, we can't say winter is coming without paying a hefty fine. Now, when I first read, when I when I when I looked at this, so I don't know if I, I think I don't think I've read this one yet. When I when I first um, read that one, I was like, what? Like what, what? It took me a while to get what what uh, what Grady, who actually writes the who who actually writes the copy. Uh, uh, was talking about. Then I got it. So let's just say winter should be arriving shortly. And what better way to fight the frigid weather than Grady's New Orleans-style cold brew, made from a special blend of 100% Arabica beans, French chicory, and signature spices, brewed overnight to give you a velvety smooth cup. You can drink iced, hot, or spiked in a co- cocktail. Treat yourself to a gourmet cup of coffee without st- stepping foot outside, all for less than a buck per cup. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 25% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. Again, that is Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. So, my uh, co-hosts, Kate and David, what are we What are we talking about? What are we doing? I thought we could start uh, talking about some reporting Kate did this week with our colleague Josh Kavensky. Uh, Looking at the challenge of distributing a COVID-19 vaccine, and obviously this week, maybe just yesterday, we had the first first shots in arms in the UK. I think uh, this first woman to get it was like a 91-year-old woman. The second, I think, was a guy named William Shakespeare. How can can that be? I'm always struck because sometimes you have someone with a famous person's name, but usually it's a case when you say, okay, when they were born, though, that person, you know, if someone's named like LeBron James, right, who's not LeBron, you say, okay, you know, but that person is, is, is uh, 30. So they, you know, LeBron wasn't LeBron. William Shakespeare has been around for a long time. <laughs> like what was the, what was the thought? Well, what was the thinking with the parents? From where Shakespeare is from. So I think it was a whole hog so it, tribute. Oh, like maybe <laughs> even like a, like a, I mean, I get, I guess, does, I don't think, uh, did Shakespeare have any, any, any descendants? Maybe it was one of these things where he had daughters but they didn't carry the name who knows getting off track <laughs> so anyways right we yeah. have the uh we have the vaccine being rolled out i think um in the u.s within a matter of weeks uh we'll have you know frontline healthcare workers other essential workers start to become vaccinated elderly populations uh and at the same time we have just an explosion of covid cases and deaths throughout the country basically rising rates almost everywhere and kate you wrote an interesting piece kind of looking at the challenge of you know, where does the money come from to actually distribute the vaccine? And, you know, states already are squeezed, you know, their budgets are squeezed just fighting the pandemic itself, you know, hospital capacity and just treating patients, you know. Mm-hmm. And so on the, on the one hand, we have like the cavalry coming with the vaccine and, and light at the end of the tunnel and sort of optimism for the first time in a while. And yet there are a lot of hurdles that are still you know, needing to be overcome. So j- just tell us about your reporting. What, um, what did you find in the course of kind of working on this, on this piece? Right. Well, it's such a pain too, because you don't want to be writing these kind of depressing articles at this point, you know, it's like, you wish you could focus on the light at the end of the tunnel instead of the fact that we're still in the tunnel. But, you know, the reality is that across the country, states and more local municipality budgets have just been decimated in their attempts to deal with COVID. And the months of inaction on the federal level has now kind of left us in this situation where they didn't have enough money before this. Um, and that means that they can't get in place really kind of any kind of real rigorous plan, kind of the apparatus they would need. Um, you know, I did some reporting in Wisconsin specifically, and two of the three biggest counties kind of couldn't even tell me what their funding gaps were because the plan is still so kind of mushy and and unformed. Um, And there particularly, the governor said they need $466 million to deal with COVID just in the first quarter of this upcoming year. Um, And that includes $12 million for vaccine, you know, infrastructure education type stuff. So what Josh and I found is just honestly kind of just a through line of 
the theme of the pandemic, which has been in this vacuum of federal aid, federal leadership, you have this patchwork kind of effort of states and, you know, private companies and municipalities trying to make a safety net, a kind of a patchwork quilt from what they have. Um, and the problem is that just almost everywhere is completely underfunded right now. And they need a lot of money to roll out vaccine distribution well, um, something that's hard to do in the best of times. And if you kind of take a step back and look at what's going on in the federal level, we've had a flurry of action more than we've seen before, but state and local funding is not an area where we've seen really any cooperation from Republicans, particularly who see it as a deal breaker. Um, and my best guess of what's going to kind of come out of this is we're going to have a continuation of programs we already have, like, you know, PPP or maybe even more direct checks to people. But it does not seem like state and local funding is an area where we're going to see cooperation, which means that these states are having to look into alternate revenue streams. You know, Wisconsin is trying to get a CDC grant to help them. Um, and it's just it really is disheartening that we're at this point in the pandemic and we're kind of staring down the reality of we have the vaccine, but states aren't funded enough to be able to distribute it in any kind of efficient manner. Kate, how? what is one thing, uh, kind of prior to this question, mm -hmm. one thing that I've been trying to understand is just what the federal role is anticipated to be. Now, I would assume that some uh, version of this story is, uh, you know, there's getting it to the state level, right? Kind of down into the states. Mm -hmm. And then for better or worse, how most of our healthcare system runs now is major integrated hospital systems. Uh, just to, you know, just uh, in, in, in the New York metro area, just for an example, although it's very similar in, in, in most of the country, you've got like the Northwell system, which now owns like about half the hospitals in the area. And then, I don't know, you got one or two others, but that's kind of how the infrastructure is organized. And I would assume it kind of gets into those hospital systems and then it's kind of up to those systems to, you know, you go to your, your GP and you, you, you get the vaccine. Obviously there's, there's certain groups that, uh, uh you, you know, um, long-term care facilities, healthcare workers, but for most people, I assume this will be done a mix of going, just going to your doctor and, you know, going to the CVS or something like that. So where does the setting aside kind of the federal government sending a grant to, to, you know, for the states and local hospital systems to run this, how, how deep does federal personnel get involved or supposed to get involved? Well, that's the thing. It seems right now that kind of the federal government's abdication is pretty complete. You know, like I had these public health departments tell me, yeah, we don't really know what we're doing, but right now we're basically trying to ask those healthcare networks that you're talking about, Josh, these kind of like weird public, private, meshy situations. Like we're trying to figure out how we can best be a coordinator for them, um, which then does land us in this area exactly where you're talking about, where the onus is kind of on people to go into their doctor, to go into a Walmart or whatever, where I think if we were able to be a little more ambitious about it, you'd have public health people talking about mass vaccination events, you know, like um, like they do with the flu shot. They have things in parking lots where people can like come in and out and, you know, it's outside and things like that. And those kind of things are just seeming more and more remote. Um, and I think whenever you have a situation like this where it's kind of falling to these private companies, basically, to be the the main hub or the main coordinator, that's worrisome, not least because then you get into issues of what about people who don't have insurance and, you know, who don't have a GP and people who are less inclined to go to the doctor to begin with. I just it's introducing all of these new kind of hurdles that would be different if we had this coordinated federal, state, local response with, uh, you know, signage and education and here's where you go and here's where you get it and it's super available and it's super easy. Um, and there's just, you know, there's neither the will on the federal level or the money on the states to kind of organize any big sweeping thing like that. So, I mean, certainly I've thought about this, like 
with the flu vaccine is that since it would be one thing if this were back in the summer where at least where we live, you know, numbers were pretty low. But now, uh, inevitably, you're sort of in this question of like, ah, I'd like like to get the flu vaccine. But like, do I really want to go into like a, a big medical center, you know, and, and sort of in the nature of things probably come in some level of contact with people who, you know, it, at least you're in the same, you know, kind of facility that that uh, were people who who have covid or there to get tested for covid. And some of this is just paranoia. Um, you, you know, uh, medical facilities have the whole, you know, kind of negative pressurization and stuff. But still, you think about that. So it would it would certainly make sense to say, all right, we're going to, you know, uh, we've got a park here uh in this part of town and we're going to set up 20 tables and just come in and, and everything's outside you don't have to worry uh but yeah it just seems like that's not no one is kind of no one has decided it's their job at the federal level to say all right let's figure this out i mean in right. that, in, and in that sense it's just um why should we be surprised i mean that's that's what happened with testing Exactly. Right. And okay, also, is there any... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to mention also the, the kind of added bonus that makes COVID harder than mass flu vaccination too is that these vaccines are two-dose, which means states also have to figure out a way to, you know, an electronic way to track who's had their first dose and when they should come in for their second dose. And, you know, and that's a big concern too because you don't want to... You don't want to waste any vaccine. So, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where... You know, maybe people are like, okay, fine, I'll go into the doctor, get my first shot, and then just trail off, you know, and, and blunt its effectiveness and all the rest. You know, the, Dave, let me say one thing. There was, mm -hmm. I, I saw a, uh, one of, you know, the FDA now has sort of released its analysis of the of the science behind uh, at least one of these, I don't know, I think it's the Pfizer vaccine. And I noticed yesterday there was a chart out, a very, I mean, a very jarring, you know, kind of good news chart that compared the cohort with the vaccine to the cohort without. And the cohort without just goes zoom, you know, kind of everybody's still getting COVID. And the vaccine one, just almost none. But what, what struck me is that if you looked at the chart, it starts on day one, day one, i.e. the first injection. And basically until the second injection, which is, is just very visible right there on the chart, it's identical. Now, any vaccine, even one that that only requires uh, one shot, you, you're not immune on day one. It takes a while. But what really jumped out at me, and again, not that it's a huge surprise. There's a reason why they're saying you need two doses because you need two doses. But basically, you don't show up for the second dose. It's almost like it, it, it didn't do anything. Um, so that's a huge, huge deal. Yeah, I was going to say the... Um just motivating people to get the first shot and then coming back to get a second one, it does seem like a big hurdle, especially when, like you say, Josh, even kind of getting up the motivation or, you know, taking the risk to go get a flu shot once can be a hard enough hurdle to overcome for lots of people, you know, lots of people for whatever reason don't get a flu shot every year. And now the idea of getting two shots in relatively quick succession does seem like a, I don't know, a challenge to convince people. Kate, but did you... Kate, I'm sorry. Let me just one one one. I apologize, David. <laughs> Kate, in, in your reporting, did it come up? What is the window in which? I, I guess it's like three weeks later you get the shot. What is the window like? If if you get to four weeks, is it too late? Is it what is that? What's that window? Well, part of it is there are different windows for the two that we have right now. I think Pfizer and Moderna have a differing amount of weeks, but. No, that, that didn't come up. I'm not sure about when it loses effectiveness. Um, this mostly came up in the context of kind of the IT effort it takes to build a system that tracks when people have their shots. And like, because, you know, the optimal version of this would be you go get your shot. It gets in the system. You get a reminder text when it's coming up for your next shot. And it's like nudges you until, you know, make your appointment, go get it, whatever. You get your second one and then it's in the system and you're like a big old check mark. And that is, you know, expensive, hard to set up. Clearly, if you look at our, our contact tracing efforts, we don't have like a super great track record of kind of keeping track of various things during this pandemic. So, um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it more came up in the, the infrastructure context. 
Yeah. Is there any sense, Kate, um, I don't know if this came up, but any sense of, you know, with the new Biden administration that there might be more kind of coordinated plans and efforts, or is it just kind of remain to be seen once the new administration is in place and the vaccines are kind of more rolled out or starting to be rolled out. Do you have any sense of that? I mean, I think we can at, at least count on, you know, a Biden administration caring more and mobilizing federal, um, you know, workers to help. But part of the problem here is that we are already at kind of a point of crisis because there hasn't been funding up until this point. So, you know, funding, absolutely critical, more federal leadership, absolutely necessary. But we're at the point now where there's going to be issues because there hasn't been action up until this point. So while I think a Biden administration will definitely, you know, try to rectify that and based on how the Georgia runoff goes, you know, that will be guaranteed. If Democrats win, that's a guaranteed stimulus package we're going to have. But um, there's at this point, you know, we're just kind of trying to make up for lost time, um, I think is the position we're in now. Is the idea that that I mean, to the extent that anyone was thinking about this, that the idea was a, a future relief bill would 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 cover this um, or like does does the federal government, the sort of the CDC infrastructure have a level of discretionary funding that could be put to this that hasn't or just kind of no one's thought about it at all? Well, I mean, there. All that's really been spent since the CARES Act is basically other money that's been repurposed for vaccine stuff. So like you mentioned, the CDC, um, Wisconsin had a $3 million grant from them um, for more like that have been kind of repurposed as more like here's a COVID aid buffer kind of thing. And now they're trying to get more to use for vaccines. But yeah, I mean, listening to, to Tony Evers, the Wisconsin governor, he was just kind of talking about how we had this one aid package in March. And part of the problem, too, is that CARES Act funding expires on December 31st. So even what they got from there is limited. And he said, you know, he said, we need the federal government to step up the, to the plate and we're going to need it two or three more times. And I think that's kind of the general thinking is like, if we had had, a, if Republicans in Congress basically would have like co-signed, you know, the HEROES Act or more stimulus, or if we had gotten a stimulus package every few months kind of thing, then, you know, there's no way that we wouldn't have, as we hear more vaccine news, that there wouldn't have been money kind of directly earmarked for vaccine distribution. But as of now, there's been not one cent of new federal money for the vaccine infrastructure and deployment. You know, one other thing that that and and I want to be very cautious about how I say this, but I I fear that public authorities are maybe not telegraphing this enough that uh, and there was there was an article uh, in Medscape a couple days ago about this, and it, it was from one uh, I think critical care nurse who was part of one of the trials and her point was she got for like 24 hours she got really sick yeah. from from the vaccine and if you've been watching really closely the all the relevant authorities Pfizer whatever they say that very few people have this happen it's nothing to worry about it will quickly pass. That is, that's the vaccine working. Um, but at least a small number of people, you know, you, you you get a bad fever, you got body aches, you get nauseous. You know, again, very small. But this does happen. Now, people have some, you know, some people have some reactions to the flu shots, although I guess... I think that's less than it was. You know, when I was younger, some people had, I think they changed the technology or something. What I, what I worry about is, I mean, when I saw the description, even I was sort of like, eesh, <laughs> that doesn't sound fun, right? Um, but so my point, is, my point is definitely not to, to in any way dissuade people. But I think the danger is that if, you know, say this is one in a thousand people that this happens to. Multiply that over 330 million people, you are going to have a, a non-trivial number of people who get pretty pretty wrecked for 24 or 36 hours. Again, they're fine. It's not actually damaging them, all that kind of stuff, but it's not pleasant, right? And given all of the uh, the existing you know vaccine paranoia that we have in this country, the more realistic 
um, caution that people have because this this was a a vaccine brought to market super super fast. You really want to tell people, hey, a small number of people will get a reaction. You'll feel you know you feel like you have a flu for a day or so. It's fine. It's nothing bad's going to happen. You're going to be a hundred percent a day later. But if you don't, and, and I'm sure that all of the relevant public officials are are very cautious about uh, freaking people out and getting people not to take the vaccine. But if you have this, you're going to have a lot of people coming forward and say, oh, my God, I got terribly sick, blah, 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 blah. Um, and undoubtedly, again, once you do a test or you know, not a test, once you give 330 million people a vaccine, you're going to have some small number of people who get this reaction. And then a week later, they have a heart attack because people have heart attacks. Right. And, and, and so you, you have to. I hope they find a way to signal about this. And so people aren't surprised. There are, you know, kind of hotlines people can call. And again, when I said that about having a heart attack, I don't mean the vaccine did it, but I mean, people die all the time, right? Unexpectedly. And when you, when you give a vaccine to more than 300 million people, you're going to have some coincidences. And we know we live in a society where people don't sit well with coincidences. Uh, and yeah. there's a lot of danger there. Right. A lot and of danger like of... of misinformation and confusion and public hysteria when we're already in an environment where a really hefty chunk of the population thinks covid isn't real or thinks covid is overblown you know who and those people are gonna be hard enough to convince to get it in the first place and then you know it's just like i saw a report today that out of um some of those like first uh injections in the uk some people had pretty bad allergic reactions and now they've kind of modified the guidance that if you're someone who gets really bad allergic reactions, you know, to the point where you have to be hospitalized and carry around an EpiPen and stuff that, you know, this vaccine could be problematic for you. And I was just kind of like reading through the comments. I hadn't seen that. I hadn't. Yeah. I wonder, I, Pfizer, it was the Pfizer one, right? That they I were think that's already, the only one right. anyone has now. Right. Right. I wonder if that's, the, I guess that's probably the same thing. I mean, there are, and I mean, because it is, the whole point of the vaccine is that it's trying to generate an immune response. Right. Um, and I guess this whole messenger RNA technology or strategy that is very different from traditional vaccines this is the first time that one has ever been, uh, I believe the first time it's actually been used in a, in a, in, in a, you know, not at a kind of just a testing, you know, kind of lab testing, uh, uh, context. Um, that's what it's supposed to do. But I mean, I think we all know there's certain people that just have reactions. I mean, there's certain people who, um, what, you know, any medication you take, you look down the side, they're going to have all of them, right? Mm -hmm. Some people's constitutions are just designed that way. For whatever reason, I never have side effects to anything, right? No matter what it is, I just don't, I'm just not the person who has those. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, I'm curious to hear more about that and, and yeah. how, again, how uh, public officials are going to are, are going to, you know, kind of square that circle or thread that needle. Well, and again, such like just such a glaring risk at what happens when you don't have federal leadership on this, you know, because even if, you know, maybe the the vaccine rollout would always have been, you know, more in the purview of the states and the municipalities than it would have for the federal government, you know, I don't know, but say that's true. The big role of the president here is to, you know, to soothe people, to concern people and to tell people what to do. And, you know, we have, I saw that story about, you know, Obama and Bush and Clinton saying they'd get vaccinated on TV to like calm people down. And that is what a president's supposed to be doing right now. It's supposed to be being someone you can look to and someone who can tell you, you know, all medication has side effects. So does this. It's so important to get it. You have to go back for your second shot, even if it's a pain, you know, stuff like that. And in that complete vacuum, because Trump is basically off the clock even more than he was for the entire duration of the past four years, it, you just have these like 
poor, totally overwhelmed, totally underfunded, kind of little county health departments trying to get this message across. Um, yeah, and it's just in, I don't know, I'm, it's, it's such a weird mixture of like the most hopeful thing that we've had come out about COVID in months and months. And then just these concerns that we don't have the physical infrastructure in place. We don't have half the country believing that this vaccine is necessary in the first place. So are they not going to take it? You know, how a vaccine is only as effective as it's taken. And, you know, we're also getting into flu season and vaccination rates on the, with the flu vaccine are way down. And I don't know, everyone keeps saying we're in for a cold, dark winter, which I think is about the last thing people want to hear right now, but there are just a lot of kind of warning signs. It's true. Only a, only a few more weeks until the solstice, right? Then the days get a little longer, so we have that <laughs> to look forward to. Definitely. Well, maybe we can uh, spend the last little bit of the show talking about politics and a, a couple of the topics Josh mentioned at the top of the show, I think kind of coincide or complement each other. One is a blog post you put up yesterday, Josh, about like, the performance art nature of politics and um, you know, politicians kind of doing things for show, not really believing it. And um, we've seen so many examples of that during the Trump era from Republican senators pretending they have no idea what Twitter is uh, and haven't seen Trump's tweets <laughs> to, you know, kind of supporting Trump's bogus and kind of flailing legal attempts to overthrow the election. So, Josh, maybe we could start. You could tell us about that. And then, Kate, you know, maybe we can segue into how it impacts Georgia with Loeffler and Purdue kind of co-signing these bonkers, long shot legal challenges that um, I guess it's being led out of Texas, right? The indicted Attorney General Ken Paxton trying to overthrow or overturn results in like four or five battleground states. But Josh, maybe you set the tone a little bit and explain uh, what you were getting at with that post yesterday first. Well, let me, and just, just to hit on the point you were just making, at least my understanding is what makes the reason, the reason why it is significant that it's Texas is that states, as opposed to individuals, can bring a case to the Supreme Court as the court of original jurisdiction. It doesn't have to kind of, you know, bounce up through the system. States, state, when states sue states, the Supreme Court is the, is the trial court, basically. Um, so on, on, on this thing about politics and performance art, you know, it sounds, uh, there's a tendency in a lot of cases to get very uh, abstruse and, and esoteric talking about politics and, and, you know, uh, get into things that, that get you pretty far away from any on the ground, you know, kind of real world effects on policy. But I have been, I, I have been com increasingly interested in trying to get my head around the, what I would say is the increasing centrality of performative politics. Um, and very closely related to that, is the role of celebrity in contemporary politics. And that is really, that's why we have Donald Trump. Donald Trump uh, is, you know, got to be president because of the character that he played in his reality TV show. And also because for really his whole adult life, he has been sort of a master of creating creating himself as a celebrity. And that's a certain uh, talent and skill set. Um, it may be hard to kind of use those words about Donald Trump, but it's true, right? I mean, in some ways, he was the, you know, he was the sort of Kardashian before the Kardashians, you know, famous for nothing, right? And yes, he was a kind of a, he built some buildings, he was a really wealthy guy, but really, he was he created this thing, this this public self, and uh, so I I have been I've been trying to get my head around how this has played out in our politics in recent years, and it's very central to to Trump. I think it's also very central to to these mass movements where people believe things that are that are clearly false. You know, clearly clearly false. And I think in many in many respects where the people know they're false. A lot of the Q stuff. People know that's not true. 
Um, but I think belief or purported belief becomes a kind of activism. You know, if I say that I believe this conspiracy theory, the upshot of which is that all the Democratic leaders will be rounded up and killed. It's not so much I believe all the different stuff. It is a the the belief itself is a is a sort of aggression. And you are basically saying, I want this to happen and I am going to embrace it as again as a form of aggression it's not it's it's not um it's not a heuristic thing it's not kind of like oh these people aren't good at weighing evidence you what you believe you know quote unquote becomes a way of expressing your um your identity and your desires and it is also the case that, you know, I, if, you're, if you spend a lot of time on social media or really in the ways that uh, politics has, what has been built on social media gets brought out of social media into the real world. You know, there's this whole cult of these, like, you know, people doing pictures with Donald Trump as a big, like, you know, muscly bodder, you know, bodybuilder he-man kind of thing or or you know trump these these kind of weird meme um you know animations with trump decapitating people or beating them or up. wrestling cnn yeah, in the ring or yeah, something. yeah yeah and and it's <laughs> it's uh you know trump is not a muscly guy he is an older obese man um you know not you know really obese he's an overweight older man so this whole thing of him you know kind of pasting his head onto a body of a young Lou Ferrigno or something like that is is absurd and kind of a joke and yet again it there are these what is it? Is it do people not know this is ridiculous? This is not a muscly guy. This is not a physically strong guy. Uh, there's a lot of performative politics that is that is about scaring people. And um, scaring people precisely because you're willing to say things that are absurd. Uh, and it, in 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 this case, to to overawe people, to scare people, to get them to back down, and in this post that I was that I was working on, you know, th- there's this question like, what are the Democrats going to do if 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 Trump supporters won't accept that Biden is president, or you know, or, or won't stop believing this crazy vote fraud stuff, and you can sort of see there that that you're like, okay. You see there where professed belief becomes a weapon that forces your opponents to, how, what do I do? How do I control what you say you believe? How do I make you not believe crazy things? And so part of living in this performative politics era is knowing how to defend yourself politically and exist politically and not get pulled into that stuff. Right. You know, I mean, you see, you know, the kind of in early times, those times where Trump would say, Oh, four more years. How about 20 more years? Uh, 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 you know, and kind of, you know, in, in our normal lives, if we're, if we have grown and are mature, we know you need to find out what you can control and what you can't control. And you can't spend time trying to control things that you can't control. And so to me, this is that thing kind of like, if, 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 if Trump supporters say Biden is not the legitimate president, okay, you know, fine. I'm not, you know, kind of as a, as a, as a Biden supporter, I'm not going to, I'm not going to get into that headspace. I'm going to kind of do, I'm going to, you know, or Biden should do the things he's going to do. And ignore that stuff because it's 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 mind games. It's like psychological warfare. 
Kate, I feel like maybe you could share some examples from Georgia where we've seen this play out, right? With um, Leffler, Kelly Leffler, sorry, I think I mispronounced her name earlier, and uh, David Perdue going after Brad Raffensperger, the Republican Secretary of State, you know, Trump going after Brian Kemp, the Republican governor. All, you know, all of these officials are pretty much aligned in their policy positions and kind of political goals. And yet you have Leffler and Purdue just kind of totally acquiescing to Trump and, you know, going after their own kind of state colleagues. Do you feel like that's sort of an example of what Josh is talking about? Or are there others that you've picked up in your coverage of Georgia as we kind of barrel towards the runoffs there? Yeah, I think it's really similar because a commonality is to what Josh was saying, that I think if you go to a Trump rally and you wear a Q shirt, you're not necessarily saying, you know, I believe that Hillary went to Guantanamo Bay and has been executed and she is replaced by a body double. Like some people are going to think that the the core, core Q and honors are going to think that. But it's more so just kind of, I think, a visual shorthand to be like, I love Trump. I'm part of this movement, um, you know, kind of. I don't know, almost on the way on, on Ash Wednesday, you know, if you're a Catholic and you see other people with ashes, you're like, hey, you know, same team. It's like this weird kind of like, it's a signaling thing. And in Georgia, you know, Leffler and Purdue have been signaling a lot. They just have a specific tightrope that they're walking right now, which is holding in contention the contrary ideas at the same time that, you know, both, yeah, this election was rigged, Trump should be president, but the runoff won't be rigged and we need you to vote in that. And that's, you know, those are contradictory ideas. So they've been kind of rallying around some helpful rhetorical pivots. Like the most recent one is calling for a signature audit. Um, And realistically, a signature audit would be useless essentially because the, first of all, it's already been done twice for most people because if you, Uh, requested your absentee ballot by mail, signature was checked on the application, signature was checked on the envelope containing the ballot. But now the ballots have been separated from the envelope. So even if you were to do a signature audit and say you find a mismatch, there's no way to know what ballot that person cast because we cast secret ballots. So their only hope there would be if a judge was like, okay, you're right, let's just throw out all the absentee ballots, which is not gonna happen. So it's not, I don't think they really believe that a signature audit would do anything, but it's a way of signaling, yeah, we agree, there are irregularities. Um, And it's kind of a way for them to pivot when when a host asks them, so you agree with the president that the general election was rigged, why should people still vote for you? You know, that's that's the pivot that they need to say, yeah, I believe it's rigged. I think we should do something to fix it. I think we should do this particular thing to fix it. And you guys need to come out and vote in January. So it's this weird, you know, this whole kind of thing that is so Trumpian and is so what Trump, uh, what Josh was saying, that is just people saying things with conviction that you absolutely know they don't believe because they're totally meritless, but it serves a purpose. And for uh, the Georgia senators in particular, it helps them show Trump and Trump supporters that they are on his side. They support him. They think he should be president. But, you know, you also need to come out and vote for them as well. Right. Josh, I'm curious if you how you see, like, the rise of C-SPAN playing into this too, right? Over the last couple of decades, you know, their floor speeches are broadcast more widely. Um, you know, Ted Cruz can get up and filibuster for 12 hours and speak to basically no one in the actual chamber, yet on TV it kind of looks like he's giving this rousing speech and that kind of creates these made-for-the-camera moments. Does, is that a precursor in some sense of what you're talking about, or do you think of it as a separate kind of issue no i it, it's it's all related in the sense of we live in a very media saturated and and want to be clear what i mean by this a high saturation of electronic media a lot of things people do you see it on television or you see it on the internet in a video form or you see pictures and stuff so that is sort of a um a predicate to all of this 
uh, you get used to certain motifs. You know, that's what that's what reality TV is about. Um, we start to kind of even understand our own lives through the prism of reality tr- TV. Like, oh, if I do, if I was on a reality TV show, how would I, how would I approach this? We see it in selfies, right? You kind of like you. I mean, it's even even at my age. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, taking pictures was a big deal. You know, you bought little cartridges that had at most thirty six pictures on them. And, you know, your parents bought those and it's, you you kind of take a picture that I don't want to waste a picture, right? I mean, there's there's these basic differences, right? In, in how our, 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 our technology, um, works now. So, so that is part of it. Um, there's also things, I think it's a really big part of it. Uh, you know, open carry activism, when people want to go into like a Walmart or a Bennigan's carrying an AR-15, you know, that is, you know, and, and this is often, it's often described as well. I'm trying to, when, 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 uh, reporters interview these people, well, I'm trying to kind of get people to understand that it's normal for me to carry a a long gun into your restaurant. Right. Uh, but these things, it's not just, it's not just in that restaurant cameras, you know, people take pictures of these things. They do news things. And again, this is you send a signal about aggression we're scary we're powerful you know we're the ones who have the guns you know if you i think anybody who gets involved in social media uh political argumentation there is there's this funny thing with debates about gun culture where it's kind of like you know guns are normal guns are about protecting you know about personal safety it's about rights there's nothing to be worried about but the conversation gets a little more heated and if it ever comes to blows fucker we have the guns and we're going to mow you down right I'm like well okay i think we've gotten to the heart of what this is about but there but again there is this thing and and i don't have it fully figured out in my head but there is, we saw it with Pizzagate, which evolved into Q, which evolved into all of this, you know, kind of this new iteration of uh, voter fraud propaganda that belief becomes a form of assertion, a form of demonstration of identity and aspiration. It's not about whether things actually happened or not. And that, I think, is, you know, you, you have these constant, I see these people debating, like, okay, how do these people think this way? How do you deal with the fact that, you know, Fox News, uh, you know, and now Newsmax and OANN and these places, like, you know, kind of feed these people propaganda, they're brainwashed, blah, 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 blah. You know, we need to kind of, uh, you, you need to kind of get everybody enrolled in a college, you know, uh, P's and Q's, like, you know, formal logic class. So they can get a handle on things and understand things that are true versus not true. That that misses the whole thing. I don't think most of these people are dumber than the average people. Belief in a lot of our political space has become a an act of assertion and identity. It's not about what you think actually happened or what reality is. You know, it's almost, in a sense, it may almost be comparable to if, like, you know, you're a Star Trek fan. You go to the conventions. And this isn't the thing on Star Trek fans. I've been living Star Trek my whole life, right? And I'm, and I'm half a century old, right? I love Star Trek. But again, you do it because you have certain kind of values. You you enjoy it. It, 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 it. It signifies things that you believe in. You, you know that it's not true. You know that it's 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 a uh, it's a TV show, but it's very powerful. And I really think that again, on stuff like QAnon and stuff, that is more the model we should be thinking about than oh, you know, these people think that uh, the electricity in your house is produced by cheese. Wow, that's dumb. We're too literal about it. Yeah, uh, maybe. Okay, maybe we can end on on the Georgia note again. And do you? What sort of obstacles 
do you have you seen in your reporting or just following news out down there about kind of overcoming that hurdle of well, if the last election was rigged, why even vote in this one or how that might impact uh, the Republican candidates? And I guess there was the debate on Sunday where Loeffler, Leffler, I'm sorry, uh, refused to kind of concede that Trump had lost. Right. So it's she's kind of sticking to her guns on that point. But is there anything you can add on that on that point of how they're threading the needle there? Yeah, well, I mean, it goes along with what Josh just said, which is when you are really literal about this, you see oh, these people think that the election was rigged. They're not going to vote in another election because they think their vote was useless. But do they really believe that? Or is that something that they're saying to show support of Trump? And again, I do think there is like a Or, or also just people, a way to say like, you know what? I don't accept it. Right. I don't you accept didn't win. It. This yeah. isn't a real win. Yeah. Yeah, your your win doesn't count. Exactly. And I'm going to come up with, oh, fraud and 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 you didn't win the bellwether counties and uh, male scary. But it really, again, it's less a heuristic or logic failure than a form of assertion and aggression. Right. I think that's completely right. And I think that's why it's really hard to gauge, especially kind of with a dearth of polling that will this matter? Will people saying that the election is rigged mean that they're not going to come out? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I think we're going to see people who are going to howl about this election till the end of time and say, no, Trump really won. Like, you didn't win. Sorry. You know, it's like, it's like a little kid on the playground who's about to lose. And then they're like, you know what? I quit. I'm taking the ball. This isn't fair. Like, that's what it is. Or like you find out your, your girlfriend's breaking up with you. Like, no, I break exactly. up with you. I'm not humiliated. It's, you're humiliated. It's this like weird, you know, childish petulance that they're kind of taking, right? You know, taking the cue, right, from Trump. Um, so I think this has been a, a question that have, has kind of compelled a lot of people and maybe Democrats in particular are taking a hopeful note from it. Like, oh, wait, maybe they won't even participate. But they, I, know, what, they know what's at stake, you I, know? I do, th- I do think the one way this could have an effect is not because people think like, oh, turns out it's all it's all rigged. My vote doesn't count. Uh, wah, wah, wah. You know, it's not it's not going to be that. But and again, I don't know how much this is really going to matter. But you have clearly created the situation where Trump needs you to say it was absolutely rigged. Trump is the real president, will remain the real president forever. That, that he's sort of gotten them into this into this kind of tight spot where they they have to say absurd things or they are enemies of Trump. And what I wonder about is to the extent that he's attacking the governor and the secretary of state and, and whatever, that he will sort of convince some sliver of the state's Republicans that you know, tr- I like Trump, but it turns out when it really came to it, these Republicans I voted for in the state were rhinos and wusses, and they weren't there for Trump, so fuck them. And totally. maybe that Luffler and Purdue get sort of wound up into that. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's uh, uh, you know, you, I think you need to get into a certain level of, you know, democratic wishful thinking there. But I don't think it's impossible. And I do think this this race will be very close. So, you know, as we as we as we've seen, uh, I mean, the th- these two races were very close on on round one. Uh, and you've got, you know, like in it. I mean, look, in Georgia, Joe Biden won by 10,000 votes. Could could 10,000 people be a little like, you know what, I, I just I uh, it, it, it's Trump or no, you know, Trump is my mm-hmm. thing and just say, screw these like, you know, kind of insiders who didn't have Trump's back when 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 he needed it. Totally. And I think there's like not a non-existent chance that I, I don't know that Trump would turn on them per se the way that he has, you know, Brian Kemp or whatever. But. I think there's a very large possibility that he completely checks out and gets completely disinterested in the race, which we kind of saw, you know, on stage when he did his rally and he spent a good 80% of it talking about himself. And then every time he came back to the senators, he would just, you know, say, okay, hold on. I I have to talk about these two people. I want to get back to the presidential, but I've got to talk about these two people. 
So I think there is, you know, a chance too that Purdue and Leffler are really trying to make it now like you have to do this for President Trump. And I think there's a chance that some super Trumpy people are going to be like, you know, take their cue from him like they always do and see like, well, his heart is clearly not in this at all. So why it, should mine be? It, it is funny because I thought he did a relatively good job yeah. in that in that speech of, of sort of threading the needle where he basically ended up kind of saying, if you are devoted to me, if you would jump off the Empire State Building because I told you to and you love me that much that you're happy to die for no reason because I told you to, if you're one of those people, you need to vote for these two people because it is it is the way to express your rage at the bad Democrat people for stealing the election from me. And he did, you know, he, he I was sort of imagine, trying to imagine myself in kind of like a Jason Miller role during the speech of kind of if I'd if I'd been one of the people who was charged with, all right, dude, keep it on track. Don't, you know, don't, <laughs> don't lose it and keep, you know, kind of keep it on track. And he kind of did, which is, you know, basically you are outraged because of the steal. And so you need to express that outrage by owning the libs by electing these two senators. Um, so he he basically did that but but i think it's also true that one of the things about trump's fans is they have gotten very used to like oh that's the speech writers and the speech writers are mostly rhinos i know what trump's real heart is telling him and that's what <laughs> it was his real heart when he said like oh who, I, who, who are these idiots? I don't even like campaigning for other people. I want to talk about the presidential. I want to talk about the rage. So who knows? You know, who knows? I, it, it, it is a, I mean, the reality is you have a very conservative, very voting hostile governor of that state who almost like that was why he was elected. He, you know, kind of like, why should I elect Brian Kemp? Because he really fucked with voting as Secretary of State. He's our guy. So, and and you've got Trump saying he's a rhino. That's 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 tough, right? That's that's kind of nonsensical, and and it's a little hard for me to imagine how that doesn't, you know, kind of upend things at some. At some level, even if he's also saying, but Leffler, she's my girl. Love that. Love Leffler. She's MAGA. You know, it just what? Yeah. I just also think she, he, I think you're right that in this, the speech was quote unquote better than I thought it would be. And that he like kind of tossed in the two lines that they basically need to slap into a campaign ad. And that from now until the end of time, the two of them can be like, well, Trump told everyone to come out like directive, you know, right from the top. But He's, you know, none of that speech ever was, you know, anything that showed that he had met Purdue or Leffler before. <laughs> like, no right. individuality, no, you know, they're, these two are terrific. It was all, you know, his message was, you know, take out your rage about me. Furthest race, we have to stop, you know, the the socialist, radical, Democrat kind of thing. But I think if it at all comes down to Trump voters trying to decide, like, have these two people been sufficiently pro-Trump? I honestly think that the, the two senators can, like, make themselves blue in the face putting out statements in support of Trump's nonsense. But, you know, Trump has not embraced either of them the way that he has embraced the few people, quote unquote, lucky enough to get into his inner circle. So if it comes down to that then I think they're in trouble. But what I think is more likely is that it's going to come down to the idea of, you know, kind of villainizing the Democrats in lieu of having very inspirational Trumpy candidates to vote for. It, it, it is just uh, <laughs> the one other thing that we haven't touched on here is, again, and it's not even cognitive dissonance. It is. It is the role of, again, different levels of ideation and different ways you think things are true. That I, I've actually heard some contradictory evidence about this. I saw Dave Weigel saying that, like, I guess he's, you know, if you don't know who Dave Weigel, you know, he's just like one of the best reporters of like his generation, right? He kind of, he, he, he is from this kind of social set uh, of, of people 
15, 20 years younger than I am, uh, who almost all of them became pundits. And he's just out there still going. Whenever there's an election, he's there in a, you know, working out of a hotel, actually, uh, you know, just talking to people. And I noticed that he said in somewhere on Twitter or something that everybody he talks to, uh, not only, you know, the Trump people, not only thinks that the race was stolen, but in fact, there's going to be a court case in the next few weeks that makes him president. Having said that, Again, I go back to my theory of things you believe that you don't believe. I don't know how it plays into this whole um, this whole question that Trump's not going to be president, and these people know Trump's not going to be president. So this is so the real question is how much are you committed to wrongfooting Joe Biden by having a Republican Senate? You know, you even you even see where sometimes they go off. Uh, uh, Kaylee McEnany had that thing where she kind of went off script and she's like, oh, if, if both them win, uh, Kamala Harris is going to be the deciding vote. Oh, 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 you know, um, so there's a lot of different, uh, you know, kind of contradictory information that everybody has to, you know, keep keep uh, keep in their head at one time to. To make sense of this, both the, both the Trump voters, but also people like us, to figure out what are what, what are people actually thinking, what do people believe, what are, what are, you know, right. what's going into people's heads. Yeah. On that note, maybe that's a good place to leave it for this week, but I'm sure we'll we'll have more <laughs> more to go off of uh, next time as well. Yep. Well, remember, everybody, uh, Grady's Cold Rice Coffee is the sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast, and uh, yeah, I guess we'll we will we will meet again in a week. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. See you, See you then. Then. Later, folks. Bye. Bye.